your talk show for all things automotive. From the latest news to the greatest views. And the biggest names in rolling iron. Your host is Brett Hatfield, freelance auto journalist, senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market Magazine and American Car Collector Magazine, writer and editor of ReadTheDriven.com. And owner of his own small but growing fleet of cool cars. Get behind the wheel of an hour of car toss starting right now. Thank you for joining us on Driven Radio. We know your time is valuable, so we work hard to bring you the best in automotive content and interviews. You can listen to us online at readthedriven.com, on iTunes, Pippa, Stitcher, and Google Play, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. Please follow us on Facebook at forward slash Driven Radio Show, on Twitter at Driven Radio Show, and on Instagram at Read the Driven. I'm your host, Brett Hatfield, here with Shelby Expert Extraordinaire and owner of Vernon Estes Classics, Vern Estes. Oh, I'm here. Yes, you are wow. here. And we're coming to you from Driven Radio Studios in Kansas City's historic West Bottoms. Coming up this week, we've got news about the next generation C8 Corvette reveal and the advent of electric pickups. We'll be talking with friend of the show, Ped Watt, who's uh, here to discuss our recent trip to McPherson College for the 20th Annual College Auto Restoration Students Car Show. And in Exit Lane Line, we'll, Live, we'll be talking to Johnny Woodell about the National Orange Popsicle Week event coming up at Fuel House next week. So uh, let's see what's new in car news this week. Uh, this past week in automotive history, in 1953, Ed Cole, chief engineer for Chevrolet, hired Zora Arcus Duntoff to be, the sh- to be Chevrolet Corvette's first chief engineer. Duntoff fought to transform the Corvette from a compromised roadster into a world-class sports car, long campaigning for a mid-engine platform. Zora's dream will finally become a reality with the premiere of next year's Corvette C8. And on that note... All right, so the CA will be unveiled in California this summer. We we received confirmation in April that Chevrolet is going to reveal its redesigned 2020 Corvette. In red ink. I did that for you. In red ink, I know, because my co-host has a sense of humor putting the Ford guy on the Corvette news every single week. It's my job. So it's going to be unveiled on July 18th, and now we know just where it will happen. It won't be at a major auto show or enthusiast meet, but rather a private event to be hosted in Orange County, California. The information was revealed in an electronic invite sent out on Tuesday, a copy of which was ob- obtained by the Mid-Engine Corvette Forum. Boy, you know, that sounds like a boring forum. Well, it, it, it kind of is, except for this, for this one thing. These guys have had more leaks, more news. They've had everything first, and I don't know how they've been getting it, but it's been pretty cool. I have a sneaking suspicion that one of the forum members is a GM employee. Sure, yeah. Well, and there's also an argument to be made that a lot of the inside companies tend to every once in a while feed certain enthusiasts with certain information to let well, it leak out a little bit. It's all part of like a formula to uh, well, and it's keep gotta, the hype up for That's stuff, gotta be know? the case with Chevrolet because this Corvette's been the worst kept It's the secret. case with Shelby. Every All the major manufacturers make what seems to be a concerted effort to let secrets get out. I mean, the Ford GT... You know, another mid-engine supercar is one of the few programs where they really kept it quiet till the unveil. Yeah. But, you know, with the mid-engine Corvette, I mean, when you're driving around prototypes on an almost weekly basis with camouflage on them that are clearly mid-engine cars. Yeah, I mean, no they're, kidding. You know, it's a big marketing scheme, which I like. I mean, I'd, r- I'd rather it be that way. It's exciting. You know, you're excited to see what the car's going to be like. True. Um, 
you know, what we imagine is that Chevy's planning to unveil the base model, which may end up adopting the Stingray name like its predecessor. We've speculated the engine mounted in this model will be an upgraded version of the LT1 6.2 liter V8 as found in the current Stingray. And that architecture is found in basically everything else. You know, oh, yeah. trucks it's, and, it's all you know, grown out of that LS yeah, platform. It's a stuff. good, good, uh, good hardy drivetrain. Um, today's version of the LT1 makes 455 horsepower, but rumors have been indicating an extra 45 horsepower for the forthcoming base engine of a total of 500, which is kind of like the entry level for basically anything sports or supercar nowadays. It used to be that 500 horsepower Could, was like a lot. Well, not that long ago, everything was right around 3, 350. If you had more than 350, it was a big deal. Oh, sure. When the 07 GT500 comes out with 500 horsepower, that seems unbelievable. In fact, yeah. previ- when the car was first a concept, they thought it had 475, and that was unbelievable. When the first Hemis come out at 425 horsepower in the SRT models of the of the various Chrysler products, that was like unheard of. Oh, it's a fun you time know, to be a car guy. Yeah, now 500 horsepower is, is the base model engine, you know. And then they're also talking about a five and a half liter dual overhead cam f- flat plane crank V8, kind of a nod to Ford, even though they kind of stole it from Ferrari. So, yeah. well, it's kind of that's the typical American thing is that one American company copies a European company, and then all the other American companies. And now copy we're going to pass company. it around like a Boda bag. Yeah, sure. So, anyway, there might even be a twin turbo version. You know, the ZR1, kind of the flagship model, might even adopt the Zora name as a nod to Duntoff. Um, you know, you just never know what really is going to happen. But uh, but it seems like it, we're getting closer and closer and closer to the to the reveal of the car. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping we get a chance to see one before they unveil it uh, in Orange County, but I doubt we will. Uh, and that's not that far away. Shoot, it's just in July. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just a, just a couple months out. Okay, well, as collector car people, it's not uncommon for us to be hauling our cars places. I mean, we just, I hauled Vlad the 61 Impala down to uh, McPherson this last weekend behind my old Navigator. So car guys usually have a truck somewhere to haul stuff, to move stuff, to do everything. And it's looking more and more like we're going to see a new fleet of electric trucks out there. Um, You know, first, Tesla was talking about a truck for a long time, and they finally came out with a Model X. But I don't know that you'd really qualify that as a truck. It's a bloated uh, crossover. Yeah, it is. Like a bloated hatchback. Well, it looks like somebody kind of squished a a Model 3 in. It looks like an even fatter manatee going down the road. (laughs) Like, it just looks like a giant whale just lopping down the road nice anyway and uh then ford was discussing uh, electric trucks for a while and ford has an electric f-150 and now gm has announced that uh, they have plans to produce either battery or plug-in powered pickups gm confirmed this during an investor call on last tuesday uh, they definitely have plans to build an electric pickup. This came on the heels of last week's announcements that Ford was going to invest $500 million in uh, electric truck upstart Rivian. Uh, news came directly from GM CEO Mary Barra and follows past hints the automaker had an electric pickup in the truck in the pipeline already. Most importantly, this follows years of Tesla teasing their electric pickup, which we still haven't seen. And uh, Ford not only uh, confirming their F-150, but they say that their their new truck platform is going to be based on the Rivian skateboard-type platform. Well, the thing is, it it seems to non-car people, it might seem counterintuitive that trucks are being electrified. I mean, you you think of trucks as like gas-guzzling, non-efficient 
items. But the thing is about battery technology is that it's all about space. And so actually the bigger car you have, car or truck, the better that the technology should work. So on these trucks, I mean, they're they're yep. already well, releasing a lot of like range statistics. The trucks might go farther than the cars simply because you've got a lot more square footage to put battery packs. And you've got a lot more capacity for carrying that around. Yeah, and at the end of the day too, there's actually, you know, aside from some range anxiety issues, uh, you know, for trucks, if you're towing, say you're towing around town, I mean, an electric drivetrain is far superior to a gas drivetrain. It's superior to, you know, theoretically should be superior, superior to a diesel. Yeah. You know, because you got 100% torque at, uh, at at the very start. Which is so. always, it, it, torque at a low range has always been the diesel's yeah. advantage in addition to the... Uh, <laughs> In addition to the uh, uh, the mileage mm-hmm. that you were able to get from them, but this this came weeks after talks between GM and Rivian had reportedly soured. Ford announced that they would build a, a new electric vehicle with Rivian using that platform. Uh, Tim Herrick, the Chevy Silverado's executive chief engineer, said at the two, 2018 debut of the current generation Silverado that uh, the latest generation of trucks were future-proof, and although the powertrain lineup doesn't consist of any electrified options, both the Silverado and the Sierra were designed with alternative power in mind. Anything from a 48-volt mild hybrid system to a battery electric powertrain and possibly even hydrogen fuel cells. Uh, They didn't elaborate on any launch times, and they said it's likely an electric Silverado or Sierra is still a few years out as GM readies uh, Cadillac to be the first GM brand uh, to have an electric SUV. You're going to make an electric EXT, you think? Oh, man. Yeah. Jeez. The EXT went over so poorly. Yeah. You know what? I, I, what's going to be interesting uh, is specifically with Rivian and now that being a Ford product. Uh, they seemed they're touting a pretty high towing capacity with those trucks, they, and I look at them, and those are the Rivian is smaller than an F one fifty. Yeah. So uh, it, generally, on like it towing, almost, it the Rivian almost looks like it would slot in between with, a Colorado and a Silverado, or between a Ranger well, they, and an F one fifty. They kind of look size wise like they'd be about the size of the new Ranger, or possibly yeah. the new forthcoming Bronco. It's basically a new Ranger, except it has a like a deeper crew cab. So it's got kind of a smaller bed. What's interesting though is that like tow ratings are generally a product of how big your axles are, sure. how big your brakes are. It's not necessarily drivetrain. Like that's what most people think. But like usually, I mean, there are well, gas and diesel engines that don't have a lot of horsepower. To, you have to have something heavy enough to be able to support what you're towing and yeah. get it stopped. And what I'm curious about is that it just seems like it's a small truck that can tow supposedly what, you know, a, f- a one ton truck can pull right now. And it just seems like I'm, I'm looking at those spec sheets and I'm thinking, how's that possible? You it know, doesn't it, seem like the math is there. No, it seems too small to do it. I don't know how they could possibly have axles like that underneath the truck, but I guess we're going to see. I, I can't, I wouldn't, I couldn't believe that they would advertise that unless it actually did it. So, well, and the, the, the Cadillac uh, SUV is coming out in 2021 and they don't, it's not even named yet. So they haven't said whether it's, it's going to be the EXT. A, it's a dolled up uh, it's a dolled up avalanche oh that'll be cute Uh, they they haven't said which Cadillac they're going to put it in or if it's going to be a standalone model there's a link to the full article that can be found on readthedriven.com and jeez man just I I don't know they just ruin it for you 
Nah, because nah, it's going. Bad dreams it's, tonight. It's going to this. I'm just going to have to. Get I got nothing against idea. electric against electric cars, but I think you know that's range is always going to be an issue. Battery technology has not moved on fast enough. Okay, so here's one for we you. We have a two car, you know, kind of family thing. We got one gas car and one electric car. And this week, I spent time on eBay looking around to see what a Tesla Model S would go for used, because ninety five percent of your driving. It's in town. You're not sure. going that far. More than 90% probably. And know. it was based on when we were in, in McPherson, did you see that uh, Luke Chennel's wife had a Model 3? Mm-hmm. And I was standing in her driveway unloading stuff for the cookout, and she pulled up, and it is absolutely silent. All you hear is the tires running over stuff. And I thought, wow, that's that's not the worst thing in the world. So I would own an electric car, but it would be in addition to all the other gas guzzling sure. carbon emission. They're actually fun to drive. I, I mean, they're fast. They are quick. They're, they're not quick. they're not fun to drive in a visceral sense, but they are very fast. Well, and she said it's really comfortable and it's very nice and mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of that it appeals. And if you want to drive an iPad, then there you go. Well, it might be fun to drive an iPad after I got out of that loud 409 powered dual quad four speed 61 impala mm-hmm. that sits three inches off the ground so anyway all uh, right coming up uh, our special guest this week is going to be photographer ped watt we'll be talking to ped about our recent trip to mcpherson college for the 20th annual college auto restoration students car show some of the amazing cars and people there and the awesome post-show barbecue that was really my favorite part i'm excited to talk about what that. the barbecue yeah or watching me try to burn all the hair off my eyebrows you were doing a pretty good job handling those wieners. I got to give it to you, Brett. <laughs> I am the sausage king. You are the sausage king of, of, of McPherson, McPherson, Kansas. Uh, all this and a lot more is coming up on Driven Radio. Driven Radio coming to you from Driven Radio Studios in Kansas City's historic West Bottoms. Today we're speaking with motorsports photographer Ped Watt. Uh, Ped's been an admirer of all things fast for as long as he can remember. His love of automotive sports began young, watching legacy European cars dominate the 24 hours of Le Mans. For his car, for his first car, he was given a budget of three thousand dollars, which he used to go out and buy a 1986 Jaguar XJS. Once he raced his way out of a speeding ticket in said Jaguar. Uh, in 2011, he merged his love of racing and photography while attending the MIDI at Road Atlanta, and he's never looked back. Ped honed his racing photography skills at motocross tracks across Oklahoma. His passion for storytelling expanded beyond the motocross track, and over the last seven years, he's photographed drag, mud, sprint, road rally, formula drift, and WEC racing events across the U.S., including races such as the Pittsburgh Vintage Grand Prix and the Lone Star Le Mans. 
A couple of years ago, Pet expanded beyond motorsports photography to pursue feature automotive photography, a.k.a. car portraits. He's uh, shot some of my cars, the and refuse, but refuses to shoot my '63 Impala. I'm attached to my camera. Yeah, well, that Impala is a beautiful car, and you know it. Uh, last weekend, Vern and I dragged Ped to the 20th annual car show in McPherson College, and we got to see and do some amazing stuff. And he's here to talk about it. Ped, thanks for being with us again on Driven Radio. It's always an honor to be here, Brett. Um, so. I talked this car show up to you for almost a year, and I I know you probably thought that I was full of it and I was exaggerating and everything else. Uh, what were your thoughts when we were at Friday Night's Cruise In? Well, honestly, Brett, when I got there, I got there about 30 minutes after it started, and I was surrounded with a sea of muscle cars and normal Euro cars, and I called you. You didn't answer, but you were about to get yelled at because I drove three hours to go to the muscle car show. Mm -hmm. I can do that in Kansas City. You can do that about anywhere. Anywhere. And then I sat in there minding my own business in this beautiful 1952 Allard K2, pulled up, and I sent you an apology via text. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I knew you were going to say that. I just wanted to hear it. (laughs) So, Friday night cruise in, what was your favorite car there, as if I don't already know? Easily the 1952 Allard. What about some of the other stuff we saw down on Main? Well, I mean, the 356s were really nice, and the um, the Stage 3 uh, Porsche 930 was absolutely breathtaking. Yeah, that was that was cool. That guy had done some really serious work to that car. Yeah. It, sound, it sounded like American muscle in a Porsche. Yeah, and I think that same guy also owned that little uh, black 356 Speedster. They were running together. He doesn't own it, but yeah, they're... They're, okay. And they're from Kansas City. I talked to them. I I thought I'd seen that car before, but I couldn't remember where. I figured it was from down there. Yeah, it's part of a collection. They've got, I think he said 12 Porsches. Gee, many Christmas. Yeah. I thought I had a lot of stuff. So, Vern, Friday night. Well, the aforementioned cars are all uh, are all fine, but they pale in comparison to the Rougarou. <laughs> the Rougarou, the, uh, the Crown Vic on... Off-road suspension. Wait, wait, wait. That was a Taurus. That was a Taurus. No, I don't think so. That was a Taurus. No, no, no. It was. I was just debating. That was either a Crown Vic or a Grand Marquis, but it didn't even matter because the thing is, is that it was just so breathtaking. In fact, I was pissed when it wasn't at the show (laughs) on Saturday. This was a uh, Crown Vic or Grand Marquis. Not sure which. It uh, frankly doesn't matter. But uh, it was on mud tires with military wheels. Had some sort of yeah, some sort of suspension lift. It had. Had a little hash mark and cross marks from whatever it had taken out, like 20 of them written in Sharpie <laughs> on the dash with a hole punched in the dash to keep the Sharpie sitting there. I'm guessing um, it's rabbits or house a, cats or something like that. had a roof rack. It was just absolutely spectacular. And and I don't even jest. I mean, that was really – it was a student of the school who drove it, I think. And that, it was incredible. And then there was also – I don't even know what kind of car it was, but the car with the exhaust that stuck up. Like oh, 10 yeah, it had, the, the, had, had yeah. the bazooka the exhaust coming out. Uh, it's the all about the student, like, weird home-built stuff. I also like the Volkswagen belly pan that was just an engine suspension and belly pan and yeah, two yeah, yeah. seats on on, uh, on coil springs that the guy drove around town, which, of course, anywhere but McPherson, Kansas, would not be allowed to exist on a public road. No, but, but the guy uh, did have a crappy helmet and some crummy uh, goggles on. And his girlfriend was riding with him. Yeah, well. It was spectacular. Uh, did you happen to notice the flowers on her helmet? I'm pretty sure those are like the things you stick in the bottom of your tub 
to keep from sliding around on the floor. Yeah, I didn't. I saw nothing but a belly pan going down the street. It was amazing. Now that Grand Marquis was the one that they had painted on the body, like the sheet metal panels, but went through, but yeah. real rivets in. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah they yeah. riveted through it. Yep, yep. And I'm no. pretty sure they painted it with a brush. I mean, it was atrocious in the most magical way possible. Well, it looked it was like wonderful. maybe they'd had a uh, a piece of metal with uh, a post sticking out of it so they could hold it, mm -hmm. and they held it up and then spray painted black around the edges to simulate pieces of metal and then they stuck real rivets over their fake metal panels. And then it even had kind of a kind of a French take on it too because it wasn't even spelled normally. It was R O U X. No, 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 it R -O -U -X. was R O U X. It was that, amazing. Rougarou. At, as I understand it, that is Cajun for werewolf. Beautiful. Is I the Rougarou. <laughs> the bits. Unbelievable. I looked it up when we got home. Artomotive artistry, if I, you ask me. Absolutely. <laughs> so that was the most impressive thing to me. And I'm not kidding. I, I thought like the creativity on that car, it was a, it was a rolling laugh. It was wonderful. For, I really enjoyed seeing it. And I'm a little surprised for, uh, over that for a true diehard Shelby and Mustang guy, that Grabber Blue Boss 429 Mustang was sitting there. And you walked away from that to go look at that Ruger well, or yeah, whatever but that I, thing I was. I see that. It sounds kind of weird, but I see that stuff all the time. So it's like, I don't know. It's like, th that's plenty cool, obviously, but I've seen lots of Boss 9s. I haven't seen many Rougarous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't see those all that often. So that was, I actually thought that was pretty cool. It was like, clearly the owner had a really good sense of humor, and yeah. it was really a creatively built car. And frankly, I'm sure he got the car for nothing, and all the stuff he did would obviously cost nothing. And that thing is, like, talk about a cool car for the money. That's well, just a fun thing. Everybody likes seeing it. It had a, it had a bigger crowd around it than any other car. You kind of wonder what fueled that though was that energy drugs. drinks probably or drugs, drugs or probably a dangerous combination of both <laughs> yeah it's, hey uh might have just it was been, probably you know, energy drinks drugs and a moderate mechanical ability and that's what you get out of that i, I love it that yeah, thing it was, was great. awesome all right so we got done with that friday night we went to luke's we helped do well we all watched Ken help do prep, and the rest of us sat around and drank. Yeah, Brett was in charge of salting the meat. Well, <laughs> not, not the first Did a real good job of that, Brett. Not the first time I've been. Yeah. Which, which rib was it I bit into and go, oh, man, I'm not eating that. <laughs> so we wake up Saturday morning early and go over to the school and by the time I get there, Pad, you're already sitting at the entrance down on your knees taking shots of everything that rolled in. How early did you get over there? I got there about 8.15. Were you really? Yeah, you, you rolled in about 9, so that really gave it me an advantage. It was not 9. <laughs> yeah, got there at 11.50, yeah, just before noon. Uh, it wasn't that late. There was still uh, – it had rained the mm -hmm. night – it yeah. rained. We had a heavy fog. So, yeah, I was shooting at cars as they arrived because we had this beautiful heavy fog with the cars coming out of it and their headlights on. And it was just a perfect scene. Uh, and I got the pictures. I downloaded all the stuff that you shot. Oh, my good Lord. There is terrific stuff just from that one entry shot. You seem to have gotten everything. Um, the 39 Caddy. Seems to have gotten a, a yeah yeah <laughs> that, that that that's that car is perfect. I mean that, this and that picture was fantastic. It it, it felt like it was took in thirty nine. I should have black and white that because I mean is this it was turning in. It got the three quarter profile and it was dipped down so it got the kind of a raised angle on it. 
and the fog just took the background away. And it was just, I mean, it was just that thing was what gorgeous. you dream of. That was a beautiful shot. So well done on that one. Um, so everybody shows up. There's almost 400 entries. Did you get most of them coming in, or did you, at a certain point did you get up and walk in and start shooting the show? I probably got about 30 or 40 coming in. I missed the first heavy press coming in. Uh, because I got there at 8.15, and I shot for about an hour and went started slowing down and enjoyed the show. Well, I know we made the corner and we were coming down the, the road, and I just see you you were kind of down in a ditch, and I just see your head pop up, and I go, oh, there's bed. And uh, <laughs> the shot you got of the 61 coming in, I know my car sits low, but I don't think I realized quite how low it looked going down the road. You can't see daylight under that sucker in that shot you got. Uh, which was really, really cool. So we get there the next morning. You shoot a lot of stuff coming in, and then we start circulating around. Uh, what was your, what were the standouts to you at the show, aside from the, the Allard that you're just, I, I, I think you'd probably sell your wife to own. Yeah, I'd sell my wife to own, and she knows it. <laughs> um, no, um, the 1914 Renault was obviously oh, a yeah. standout beyond a shadow of a doubt. That thing um, was really, really cool. And uh, Vern and I had walked around and looked at that, and we were sitting on that that brick wall there while everybody was watching it. Vern looks it up, and then I realize, oh, oh, wow. I didn't realize how – I mean, only the most significant cars make it around uh, that circle the in the first place. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize quite what that was until we pulled it up online and started looking through all the history and everything. Well, what's interesting about that car is there's no way to say this without it sounding super pompous. But so it's a 1914 Peugeot and it was built for Formula One, yeah. raced at Indy in 1916, finished third. It's the first dual overhead cam uh, four valve per cylinder engine. So like some people make the argument that that quite possibly is the most significant car, or one of the most significant cars ever Absolutely. created. And what's interesting is that that car hammered or at least sold all in for around $7.2 million at Bonhams a year and a half ago. It did. Um, what I find interesting about that is how significance doesn't necessarily transfer to the highest values in the world. Because $7.2 million is obviously not a small amount of money, but it's nowhere no. near the but top. Ferrari GTOs. The worst one in the world regularly, sold for $38 million. Yeah, regularly sell for $40, 50000000 million. The Peugeot got the money because of its significance and its rarity versus a GTO where it's absolute pure art on top of that. Sure. At the end of the day, the Peugeot is a Grand Prix car. It looks well, like a Grand Prix car. Yeah. I mean, it's not rolling art other than the fact of what it is. It is. But for when it was made. State-of-the-art. It, it was state-of-the-art. The, the art. group of guys that made that drivetrain. And the wasp tail on genius. that was really, With the really dual cool spares looking. underneath? Yeah, really cool. That was, mm -hmm. And that, that particular example is all original body. Original floors, original engine. I mean, it's amazing that it survives so complete, you know. And it's we've talked about the Collier collection before. And when when I was looking at that car, two of them exist, and I didn't realize the other one was in the Collier collection. Yeah. Uh, which makes me laugh because my main complaint about going to visit the Collier collection is that everything is so good that you can't spend any time looking at any one thing if you're only going to be there for one day because yeah, you're constantly skipping from thing to you'll thing. You'll never make it through. You know, I went through that whole museum, and that is, you know, some say one of the most historically significant cars in the world, but I didn't even realize that car was there. I skipped right over it while I was there because there's original paint 917s there, yeah. and there's 250 LMs, and there's 
you know, there's, Mercedes-Benz Silver Arrow sitting there. There's all sorts of other stuff. That it's just it's it's mind-boggling. Well, and and the other thing is that car's there, and obviously it is a significant car, but it's sitting right across from that '46 Curtis Indy car. Uh, that was probably my favorite car of the three, just because it had a great look to it. Well, it was a really, really cool car. And then they've got those sitting opposite that 1952 Ferrari uh, uh, 212 212 Vignale. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Vignale did kind of odd things with those cars, and it had a shorter roof line on it. And it's a very different car. And what's it, one of six? One of six, and that's the Geneva Auto Show car from, I believe, 52. Yeah, Yeah. I mean. uh, First one of the six. The headlights on that Ferrari. Yeah. I mean, this. The front fenders. Oh, I know. but uh, And the dual rear bumpers on the mm -hmm. back of it. I I think that's a cool-looking car. It's an acquired taste for some people, but I think that's just a neat car. The grille is hard. Yeah, the the Vignali, that mouth it's got on the front is tough to – it, it, it's it's tough to get your head around it. I, I, I'm going to get cast castigated for saying this. Almost looks like it ought to have a fish hook hanging out of it, <laughs> but it it just is. It's almost a polarizing design. Mm-hmm. Sure, but the rest of the car is so sexy. Well, what people forget about Ferrari of that era is that you basically only got two things. You either got extravagant coach building, which is what that car is, or you went fast, or yeah, or you got. Like purpose-built race cars. Yeah, and that's it. And they were all in the same chassis. They all had the same drivetrains. Well, like Enzo that didn't car, really want to buy build cars. No, he hated his customers. Yeah, yeah. he couldn't stand his road car customers. Well, he, he disdained them. He thought, thought that they he thought were his, huge wusses. He thought they were kind of dandy and foppish, yeah. and yeah. But it allowed him to go racing, so he sold them cars. Well, you know, it's uh, it, the ends justified the means, I guess. Uh, okay, so what else other than the feature cars that were there? There was also that uh, that seventy Hemi Cuda that was there. Mm-hmm. Craig Jackson's car, yeah, uh, vitamin C orange, yeah. four speed, and, and a, a neat car, but really didn't seem like it would it fit with the other three. You don't think that goes the nineteen fourteen Peugeot Grand no. Prix car? No, no it doesn't. Oh, I would have considered all. those in the exact same sentence. No. My <laughs> No, I get a really strong <laughs> kick out of the uh, Field Ultra uh, Dragster. The, the oh, that shirt. was – yeah, yeah, yeah. That was very cool and way loud. Way loud. He still he, he still runs it. He still throws it down the track every once Does he really? Yes. The paint on that looked like it was period correct. I mean, it, it looked like the original paint yeah, job. Yeah, I mean, it's – Which for a dragster is kind of – Yeah, it was. It was original paint. Yeah, it's it, it's it been raced. Yeah. yeah. Really. And then the other one, the one that I, I absolutely love, but part of it is because it, it belonged to Will and he's a buddy of mine and all that stuff, was Will Posey's 32 Ford that he brought. And just startling craftsmanship on that. Now, the color was probably the customer's choice. And I think that because it was a light color, it showed off an awful lot of the craftsmanship very well. But just the build quality on the whole car I thought was rather amazing. And they've already invited Will back next year to do a presentation for the students. So pretty impressive stuff. Very, very cool Speaking car. Speaking of build quality, the uh, Crosley Coupe rat rod. Oh, yeah. That setting thing on dualies great. with air ride. Uh, that thing should have been parked next to the Rougarou. I did not see that car. That was just think. right in front of the Impala and like four or five cars over. Okay. And yeah, I didn't see it. it, it uh, didn't that have corrugated sheet metal off the side of a shed for back windows? Absolutely. That thing was just 
unbelievable. That was. Uh, yeah. I thought what was fun about the show overall, though, is just that there was a like a huge breadth of cars. There was all sorts yeah, there of was. stuff there. Well, and there, there were, were almost four hundred different entries, and there was a little bit of everything. There was a little bit of everything. There was modern AMG stuff. There was eighties Mercedes stuff. There was all sorts of Porsche stuff from all the different kinds of types of Porsches. But then there was also there's a really killer uh, Buick Speedster. There were some interesting tractors. There was it was a, just all sorts of stuff. And there was stuff. a pretty good contingent of pre-war stuff that was there. Yeah, and they also had uh, a, a deserving of a mention, I think, is the McPherson High School Jazz Band, which actually oh, was yeah. really good. They, they they got up there and were playing, and I, yeah, I, they were I stood there. I sat there and listened to them for like 20 minutes. I thought they were really, really good during the show. Well, so the, the, band, the bands, uh, they had uh, the high school jazz band, and they were good. They sounded oh, yeah. lots better than a, a high school band. And then the college jazz band also, mm-hmm. and uh, apparently an awful lot of that was comprised of auto restoration students, mm-hmm. which was very cool also. Uh, so that was really neat. Did you guys, did either one of you see the hand-formed Jaguar D-type body that oh, yeah. they made over the wooden bucks? And oh, yeah. they just, they weren't doing that for a car. They'd just done it for an example of what, the students were capable of doing and that's got a lot of complex curves in it and a lot of stuff going on that's not mm-hmm. an easy body to put together no so very cool stuff all the way around um okay now's your chance personal favorite 52 allard all and, day long and why was the 52 allard your favorite because it's an allard i mean and well, I got right in it, but that's okay, besides now, the point. Th- that's this is the story we're looking for. I mean, realistically, how often do you get to ride in a seventy-two hundred, seventy-one hundred original mile, fifty-two allard, seventy-one hundred miles on it, seventy-one hundred original miles on a fifty-two allard, on a fifty-two allard K two. Okay. Now Allard's used a lot of different drivetrains, a lot of different engines and stuff. What did he have in this one? So the, this he had the Cadillac V8 in it, and then a Ford uh, three-speed truck in, uh, transmission behind it, which was factory. Yeah, but I think the three-speed truck transmission was the only one they used, no matter what engine yeah. you had. Yeah, they always used the. Uh, to my knowledge, they always used the Ford's uh, three-speed. Very cool, man. Uh, your personal favorite? It's a three-way tie. Okay, what do you got? It is diverse. Okay. So. Rougarou wasn't at the Saturday show, if but it was, I'm going to put it in there. It. If it if it would have been, it would have been one of the favorites. So <laughs> it's one of the favorites. And then you got the 1914 Peugeot, yes. which, you know, you go from Rougarou, which is supposed to be sort of like unsophisticated and funny, and the 1914 Peugeot, which is as like high up in the automotive echelon as you can get. Yeah. But there was also a car that nobody's mentioned so far, and it was just kind of hidden, and it didn't it didn't like attract a lot of attention. But uh, there was a big Healy. In oh, the Austin really? Healey section, that was a light blue that was original paint, and it had just the perfect amount of scuffing in the paint, and it was thin in areas, and it was just beautiful. I it was saw really that nice. car, but I didn't spend a lot of time. The looking interior at it. was all original, or at least appeared to be, and it was just like the perfect amount of patina. And I, the owner, I never saw the owner near it, so I never had to talk to him. But that car, I kept, I went back to it five or six times. That's I cool. just it was a cool car. Um, personal favorites for me, uh, aside from my own car, obviously. Uh, the light green Porsche RSR lightweight replica with the ducktail on it and the flares and the wide fuchs and the whole bit. Man, was that thing good looking. And I'm not a fan of green at all. It was but a very factory looking car. That too. It looked, looked right. 
really good. It was dead on. Yeah, it looked it correct. It was dead on. And unless you really, really knew what you were looking for, I don't think you could distinguish that one from a real RSR. Mm-hmm. And that was a very well done car. Really like the black 356 Speedster. Mm-hmm. That was tough not to like. There was a very clean Mercedes 280 SE convertible. Yep. That was down over toward Templeton Hall. Mm-hmm. That was really pretty. I liked that. Which color was that? It one? was silver with a black interior. Okay, yeah. And it was a very pretty car. Walked around a little bit. Uh, got to see uh, a few other things. I really did like the the dragster the guy had. And when he fired it up, it was god-awful loud, and I couldn't get over there fast enough. That thing sounded amazing. And uh, there was... There were a lot of really cool cars in a really diverse field. Um, everything from Luke's almost a car, the three tractor seats on the mm-hmm. car frame, yep. uh, to that that Curtis Indy car was very cool. I, I liked the Ferrari, the Vignale. Um, just so much good stuff. And this show, I mean, the last place you would expect to find a show like this is in central Kansas. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the quips I heard made about the show, somebody said it was uh it was the Hillbilly Pebble Beach, <laughs> which <laughs> seemed to fit pretty well. Um McPherson is a town though. Just seems like a place that you'd want to spend a lot of time. Everybody likes old stuff there. Everybody drives old cars. You know, even people yeah. that weren't at the show, there's a lot of old pickups rolling around. People, Kids are driving Model A's and Model T's into school it's, every day. It's a really interesting town, and I think they've embraced uh, McPherson College and the auto restoration program a great deal. The other thing that I was really impressed with were the people we saw there. Uh, and by that, I mean, you know, Donald Osborne was there. Uh, he's one of the world's uh, best-known auto journalists and appraisers, and he's on Jay Leno's Garage and uh, What's My Car Worth? And he did the presentation Friday evening and an evening with auto restoration, and then Saturday morning he sang the national anthem at the show. And uh, Kind of cool. Donald is also a trained opera singer. So when he sang the national anthem, it was really incredible. Uh, Tom Cotter of Haggerty's Barn Find Series was there. Uh, auto journalist Dave Kenny, Paul Russell from Paul R- Russell Restorations, D- uh, John Klinger, who's the vice president of PR for Haggerty Insurance, uh, Will Posey, we mentioned before, from Big Oak Garage, Scotty D of Scotty D TV on YouTube. I don't know if you guys are uh, aware of this. His YouTube channel passed 100 million views last month. Hmm. 100 million views. That's like if a third of the U.S. watched his channel on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, we ran into a friend of the show, Casey Maxson, and also Diane Parker, both of the Historic Vehicle Association. There were a lot of big car world muckety-mucks walking around at this show. And if you knew who these people were, it it was really kind of impressive, especially considering where's the nearest major airport to McPherson, you got to fly into Wichita and drive like an hour, hour and a half to get there. Sure. So, it, pretty wild that that school and that program draws that kind of attention. Okay, now the really, really, really good part: cookout after the show at Luke's. 
<laughs> as good as the show itself. Uh, I have to agree. Now, how how surprised were both you guys when we pulled up at Luke's and that uh, Peugeot was sitting on his lawn? Yeah, it was. Uh, I was more surprised when I was about to pull up and I saw it running down the street. <laughs> that exhaust. It sounded, I mean. Oh, it sounded pretty, amazing. Yeah, that car sounds good. He got a movie of it. Mm-hmm. Pat got a movie of it running down the street. That was pretty cool. But uh, because we went straight there to help out uh, after the show, uh, my car was the second car to pull up, and that Peugeot was there. I pulled up behind it. Ped started taking pictures of my car. Got a bunch of pictures of Vlad sitting behind a $7 million 1914 Peugeot race car. Pretty cool stuff. Um, Luke must spend his whole stinking year collecting meat and putting it in his freezer to have enough to feed all the people that were there. I think he said that somewhere between 130 and 150 people showed up for this thing. He just seems like a really nice guy. That's the first time I ever got to meet Luke, and he just seems like a really genuine, nice person. He is a genuinely nice person. He's also a, a genuinely, he's really a brilliant person. And he's also really funny if you catch him just right and get him to talk about stuff. Like, well, you've heard the the Bell's Palsy pirate story tells oh, yeah. about being stranded out in the country, which was hilarious. Um, Got to thank Aaron uh, and the staff from Brumos Porsche from for bringing that uh, Peugeot over to Luke's house and the work that Luke put into that that cookout. I can't even imagine what that takes, and that's. You know, a lot of us showed up night before the show to help do prep, and we showed up early to do prep. And uh, Vern, you and I were cooking sausage out on that. Cooking the wieners. Out on that grill, trying to burn all the hair off my knuckles. And uh, Ped was taking pictures of everything under the sun. I was, <laughs> You got some good stuff there. You yeah, really I mean, did. how often do you get private access to a car like that? Well, you just don't. And then you... Uh, you know, you disappeared for a little while when we took off and went to Luke's, but that's only because you were out running around in that Allard. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we, we did probably five miles in the Allard, and I don't apologize for disappearing. No, you shouldn't. I wouldn't think that you would. And uh, so tell me about the owner and what happened as a result. Uh, so the owner, um, so that car is from Allentown, Pennsylvania. It was originally sold to the original owner in Allentown has never been sold outside of Allentown. Um, he restored it. Yeah, I think in 2012 is when he started restoring it. He ha- happens to be the largest single owner of red bugs in the country. They're these weird little three-wheel cycle lay flat. You don't lay flat, but cycle car looking things, but they're not up in the air like a Mercedes cycle car or, or Morgan cycle car. Um, he's actually the historian for that, that car. No kidding. No kidding. He's got a 36 LaSalle. Uh, got a personal invite to come wander through his collection next time I'm in the area. Oh, Lord. Which I'm thinking about char- charting a jet. I know there's an airport <laughs> there. <laughs> um, he's got a couple of 50s Jaguars, 60 toys, 70 toys. Um, wow. This absolute wonderful collection. Super nice guy. Very um, cool. All right. Well, it was the McPherson Auto Show. We've been talking to a friend of the show, Ped Watt of Watt Design Photography. You can find Ped's work uh, at wattdesignphotography.com and on Facebook. 
at, face, at forward slash Watt Design Photography. Uh, these links and the links to all the other articles and, and some pictures and a good article about the show can all be found on readthedriven.com. When we come back, we'll be talking to Johnny Waddell, founder of the National Orange Popsicle Week, about raising stroke awareness and their upcoming event at Fuel House. All this and more when we return on Driven Radio. Driven Radio coming to you from the Driven Radio studios here in Kansas City's historic West Bottoms. Uh, Our next guest, Johnny Woodell, is the founder of the National Orange Popsicle Week. And uh, Johnny and Amy Woodell were married in 2010 when they were both 24 years old. Uh, Four months after being married, Amy had a brainstem stroke. Doctors repaired her damaged vertebral artery, but later that night she bled into her brain and was left motionless. After 30 days in the ICU, 30 days of inpatient rehabilitation, and years of outpatient, you wouldn't think that Amy was a stroke survivor if you saw her. Once the newly married couple moved home, they decided to start raising awareness that young people could have strokes too. When Amy could first talk again after the stroke, all she wanted was an orange popsicle. So they started National Orange Popsicle Week, also known as the NOPW, to help raise awareness. After nine years of awareness campaigns and six successful auto shows, NOPW is now preparing the NOPW 19 car show at the Kansas Speedway September 28th this year. To kick off the National Stroke Awareness Month in May, NOPW is hosting a pre-party called the NOPW Pop-Up. It's going to be hosted at Kansas City's premier automotive event and country club, the Fuel House in Bonner Springs on May 17th at 7 o'clock. Join them there for a night of fun, food, drinks, and fine cars as they prepare NOPW 19 Auto Show and learn more about NOPW, Ability KC, and the Fuel House. Johnny, welcome to Driven Radio. Well done. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. So diving into your background a little bit, uh, tell us about what happened to Amy, about her stroke, what was going through your head. Uh, Just walk us through your story. Yeah, I mean— it's a pretty long story, but I mean, you don't expect your your wife to be motionless on a hospital bed four months after you get married. They always say, uh, for better or worse, and we always joke that we got the worst first. Um, so when Amy could first talk again, we had to do these tests and because she couldn't speak because the stroke was impaired her speech. Um, and also she had a trach. So um, when they removed her trach, she started kind of talking a little bit, but she kept saying, like, popsicle orange popsicle orange popsicle and we're like what are you talking about she's like i want an orange popsicle so it's it's pretty common to like want something or crave something mm-hmm. when you're in the hospital and that was her thing we've asked a couple other stroke survivors what was their thing and someone said mashed potatoes or like steak or something like that luckily ours is a fun enough treat so everyone can enjoy and it's not expensive so that's where the orange popsicle came from exactly yep all righty uh Tell us how you got involved in promoting stroke awareness. Now, that's something that's kind of unusual for young people, and certainly you would want people to be more aware of it. But what was your first step to get involved? Yeah, so uh, we knew that it was rare what Amy had a stroke. 
at 24 years old because um, when we went to rehab, the oldest person who had a stroke in the rehab floor was in their 40s. Um, and so here's this young 24-year-old who had a brainstem stroke, which is the worst kind of stroke. Um, when we got back home, we had friends who said, hey, let's do something to celebrate Amy's life. You know, there was, let's celebrate her her stroke day or whatever. So we did a doctor dance-off. So we dressed up as all doctors and had just like a dance party. <laughs> and then some person reminded me that, uh, reminded us that Amy wanted orange popsicle. And so she said, um, we should do like a popsicle day, like have that as a fun day to celebrate Amy's life. And so we started doing that, and people were all of our friends across the nation were sending photos of themselves eating orange popsicles. And we're like, so there's something kind of here with this orange popsicle. It's silly, but it also brings up a serious conversation. And so we just decided to turn it into week because it took our friends forever to find orange popsicles for one day. So we said, you have the whole week to do it. Send us photos and everything like that. Once we started doing that, this community started to form. And other young stroke survivors started to pop out of the, out of the, you know, out of the darkness because they saw this light of a community of other people like themselves, um, and that's kind of our biggest goal is to build a flourishing community of young stroke survivors within OPW. Now, since you got involved, uh, have there been advancements or changes to stroke awareness? Um. I I don't I don't know like officially the answer to that, but I can say that we've we've gone into hospitals and stood on the side of young stroke survivors who have had a stroke, stood on the side of their ICU bed, talked to their parents, talked to their nurses and things like that, and just reminded them like you gotta look for the signs. The signs of a stroke are fast, F A S T. And of course they already know this, but now they can share this with their friends and family. And what? So fast means face droop, arm drop, speech. Um, slurred and time to call nine one one. Okay, so that's fast face droop, arm drop, speech slurred, time to call nine one one. And time is the most important because there's a small, small window to get to the hospital with a stroke. If you start seeing those signs, the, the sooner the better. Uh, and in in kind of a related uh, uh, note, my my other job is working for. Keith Martin, who publishes Sports Car Market and American Car Collector, Keith had a stroke in January mm. and was lucky enough to uh, have gotten help very quickly and had and to be at the hospital in under 45 minutes mm -hmm. yep. after, from the time the stroke started. And they said that is yep. the most critical thing yep. is to uh, get help as quickly as possible. Yep. Um, so how did you come to find... How did you come to uh, plan this event at the Fuel House? So uh, part of our awareness campaigns has always been let's put on an event and get a lot of people involved and try to do this whole awareness thing. So we dyed the J.C. Nichols Fountain Orange down the plaza for many, <laughs> many years. Um, we've done uh, – we started doing an auto show. We did other meetups and group events and everything like that. So our first – Car show was two cars. I wanted two orange. I wanted all orange cars. So I reached out. I looked everywhere online, all the forums and everything. I said, "Who has an orange car? Who can come? Let's do this." Two cars came. <laughs> so 
that year I was like, maybe I should open it up to all colors. <laughs> and that next year, we had a rundown Sonic off Metcalf, which is now this high-rise building. Um, and we had about 40 cars. And then it just started growing. We got into the Bass Pro parking lot, um, 100 cars, and then year three was 150 cars and then year four was it just kept going it sounds up. like this has gotten really big yeah it's uh it's been a lot of fun last year was our first year at the infield of kansas speedway um speedway reached out to us they said they wanted to be a part of it and uh we were like eh, i guess just kidding <laughs> <laughs> we were we were a little bit freaking out um so last year i was re- looking for sponsors and i live near Bonner, and uh, I was reading about the fuel house being built, and uh, I thought that was a, just an awesome idea. And so I reached out and said, hey, you guys want to get involved with our auto show at the Speedway? And, of course, they were like, yes, let's do it, because they're a new brand. They're, they need to get their name out. And uh, they came. They brought some awesome cars, and um, I've just built a relationship with Eric over there at the fuel house. And we thought, hey, mid-year – before the auto show of 2019, let's have a little pre-party to get ready and get people excited and engaged And so uh, about the 19 auto show. And so we're doing the pop-up, and the pop-up is a pre-party. It's not a car show. It's not an auto show. It's, it's drinks, food, and just hanging out at the fuel house with a bunch of cool cars that already paying members have parked their cars there. Now, for the people who will attend the pop-up, are you encouraging them to drive cars if they have and drive collector stuff? I'm not. No, because this is not an auto show. This okay. is this is highlighting the uh the fuel house and what they have to offer. I have a few cars that will be there that are have kind of became uh highlights of our auto show, a sixty seven fastback, a bagged nine eleven Porsche, um, a few things like that. Audi Shawnee Mission will be there with their new E Tron uh electric, oh, very cool. electric car. Um, but yeah, no, you don't need to bring your car. You just need to come learn about the auto show in the, at the speedway. That's where you bring out the toys. Okay. And the auto show is taking place September 28th. That's when you have an opportunity to bring your car out and show, uh, is it any particular kind of car or just anything? It's all makes all models. And what's neat about our show is it's the night show. So you, you guys that spend thousand dollars on your lights rig, on your light rigs, your halos, your underglow, whatever you can really... Really show, show it off. off. And then the photos are amazing, Ted. And, <laughs> and uh, for those of us who feel like being more generous, what percentage of the proceeds go to charity? 100%. We, uh, every, we're not a – everything we make, it, it gets directly uh, donated to Ability KC, which was formerly known as the Rehab Institution of Kansas City. And what we do is we donate specifically so that they will purchase tools or equipment for stroke survivor recovery. Last year, we bought this awesome new tool that is being used every hour to, to date, it's, and it's incredible. So we're really excited for this coming year to raise more money and buy new tools and new equipment for Ability KC. And it sounds like a terrific charity and a terrific opportunity for people to give to something that could make a real difference. You can find all the links to the ticket sales for the NOPW pop-up, information about the event, the NOPW Facebook page, and articles about NOPW on readthedriven.com. Johnny, thanks so much for being here on Driven Radio and sharing your story. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
having me. Uh, thanks, thank you so much for spending time with Driven Radio. We love what we do, and we wouldn't be able to do it without the support of our audience. You can find us online at readthedriven.com. Follow us on Facebook at forward slash Driven Radio. On Twitter, at Driven Radio Show, and everywhere fine podcasts are heard. I am Brett Hatfield for Vern Estes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time here on Driven Radio. <laughs>